BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, December 27th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So... Indre, we talked on a prior show about how I attended this thing called the Carl Sagan Summit at the Library of Congress. It was all about his legacy. And one of the most amazing talks that I heard there was by Carolyn Porco, and she's the woman who heads up the imaging science team for the Cassini spacecraft, which is now in orbit around Saturn. And so basically, she's the woman behind those amazing pictures that you see on a regular basis of Saturn, its rings its moons. And um, at the Sagan Summit, what she talked about was how she had gotten the Cassini spacecraft to take an amazing photo that updates the famous pale blue dot image from the year 1990, taken of the Earth from Voyager spacecraft. And it was heavily publicized by Carl Sagan in very lyrical form. And everybody kind of knows this picture. Uh, And so she took another picture, or the Cassini took another picture of the Earth, and it's a wonderful image that we're going to have online accompanying the show, but she did it with a twist. And here's how she described to us in our interview uh, what the picture was like and how it was taken. It occurred to me somewhere along the line, you know, every time a spacecraft, a NASA spacecraft, turned to take a picture of the Earth, and there have been many actually since the original pale blue dot, it was always taken and then announced to the public afterwards, hey, here's this picture of the Earth. Isn't it cool? We took it last week, or, you know, we took it from the surface of Mars a month ago. I thought, whoa, all of this is such a lost opportunity. Why don't we tell people in advance, your picture is going to be taken, and we could turn this into an interplanetary photo session, you know, an interplanetary salute between robot and maker. So on the show, we talked about this amazing picture and also some of the some of the really stunning things we're learning about Saturn, including the very real possibility of life on one of its moons, Enceladus. You know, I've always whenever I see these images, I, I have to admit that they almost look fake to me. They're so perfect. And I'm sure there's, you know, a whole set of conspiracy theorists that are having a field day with them. Um, but at the same time, it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around just how he managed to set a craft orbiting around Saturn. It seems like an impossible task. 
what they do, you know, how they, you know, go in close and get these images of the moons, and then it, then it's doing something else. Then it's studying the rings. I I don't I don't understand how they do it. It is an amazing testament to what we can do. And plus, when the pictures come back, it is total nerd heaven. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, uh, this is the show that we are releasing as we head into the new year. And I guess we have some things to say about that. So, Indre, tell us, you've, you've looked into the psychological significance of marking time um, in the way we do, where we say, okay, that was 2013, now this is 2014. What does that do to us? Yeah, well, this topic has been on my mind lately, um, in part because I'm pregnant, which you knew, but maybe some of our listeners didn't know. Um, and my due date happens to be New Year's Eve, December 31st. Wow. So, you know, baby could be born in 2013 or 2014. I have no idea which. And, you know, I have no idea whether it matters, but it seems to me like it kind of does, because certainly I have my own identity tied to my age and the year in which I was born. Um, so it's this weird kind of transitional period for both me and, of course, for this this kid who's going to, or I guess my body's going to decide when he's born. So, you know, I, t I wanted to see how our sense of self changes with our birthday or with the new year. So I turned to science, as one does, and I found this paper <laughs> published this past October in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, JPSB, which is a, a very high quality journal. And it suggests that temporal landmarks like birthdays or the turn of the year have the capacity to affect our self-identity. Um, it's a series of six studies that together show that, you know, we tend to separate our lives into chunks and that temporal landmarks, weddings, births, and even more common ones like birthdays, give us the opportunity to reinvent who we think we are um, in our own minds. And, you know, you might think, well, that's just arbitrary and irrelevant, but it turns out that how you perceive yourself has a very strong effect on your ability to do things and to reach your goals and to change. Well, so what are you expecting to think of yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's going to, you know. It's your, in... <laughs> your identity changes to, to mother. I mean, that's kind of yeah, uh, I mean, that's... a big one. That, that is the one, is it not? It's a big one. Yeah. In 2013, I was just, you know, another 30 something. And, you know, and then in 2014, I'll be a mom, which is really mind blowing. Um, yep. But try not to think about that too much. <laughs> I think you will mark this transition. I think that's... <laughs> so. It's not as obviously a big a transition for me, but philosophically, uh, if I could dare to be, this is kind of positive news for me because the the when I'm thinking uh, and trying not to be nihilistic, um, I, I, it seems to me that we tell ourselves that there is a such such a thing as us, but really, and you know, there's a constant us. There's some essence to who we are personally, but there's a lot of reasons to think that's kind of a construct that our brain lets lets us make to organize our experiences but that can be empowering because it means you can make a new you you can make a new self anytime uh and if if a change of the year is what makes that happen uh, then you and that's what makes you take control of your life and make it what you want it to be then good on you i mean more power to you so seize seize the transition yeah i mean I yeah, so we think, you know, our, our identity is something that neuroscientists are more and more interested in these days. Um, because, of course, there's so much of our brain that we're just not privy to in terms of consciousness. You know, so many computations happen outside of our consciousness, so much so that there's, you know, a whole slew of neuroscientists that are questioning the very essence of or the very existence of free will. 
but let's not go there uh, for right, the moment. No, let's not. <laughs> but, you know, so, of course, our sense of self uh, does tend to affect the way that we make decisions, the ones that we are conscious of, at least. And what I really liked about this, this series of studies is that the authors use the analogy of um, navigational direction. So when you want to tell someone, say, how to get to your house, you know, you use landmarks. So take the third right after the lights or, you know, across the gas station, whatever. Well, we do. Or the this- British voice says, take the motorway from your GPS. <laughs> That's what mine does anyway. <laughs> okay, Chris. <laughs> that might be TMI, but whatever. We'll let that okay, one go. <laughs> okay. I couldn't resist. We switched it to the British voice recently. Okay, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, well, anyway, so we do the same thing when we think about ourselves. So before I graduated from college, I was, you know, X, Y, Z, naive, lazy, whatever, whatever you want to say. But then I've turned my life around or maybe the opposite. You know, in the intervening years, I became, you know, more whatever. And so... We say the same, the same thing about different years. You know, 2013 was a difficult year. 2014 is going to be much better. And so the punchline is, is that if you actually want to change something about yourself, giving yourself a temporal landmark in 2014, I will no longer be X, whatever that might be, is actually a pretty powerful thing to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice. So I hope that everybody listening will go out and change the world. We're putting a lot on you folks, but we know that you're up for it. <laughs> and I'll just have, I'll say one more <laughs> yeah. thing. People might say, oh, well, this is that, such an American thing, you know, change your life. and whatever. But, you know, the studies were done in Germany. They were done on German oh, really? students. So, yeah, it must be pretty compelling. And also there is a cost. Uh, so sometimes if there are too many temporal landmarks between yourself and your future self, it gives you a license to procrastinate uh, because you're perceived to have a disconnect with your future self. And this is one of the reasons maybe people put off things like, you know, saving for retirement or getting health insurance. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy now and I'm young and I'm not going to get sick. So why do I need to worry about what's going to happen when I'm, you know, 85? Um, and yet, you know, that's, it's not, that's not a rational, that's not rational behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is a this is a great study, and I'm glad glad we've learned about it. And I have another New Year's scientific story for us, right? Because not only do people mark the turning of the year as a time of great significance, but of course they set goals, and we've already been implying that that we call them resolutions. One really, really common resolution is, you know, I'm going to lose some weight this year, and I'm going to lose some weight in these, you know, couple of weeks. I'm going to run on January first, right? And we've we've all heard the recommendation that if you want to actually succeed at this, you, you need to set a moderate, reasonable goal, something like I'm going to lose five, five pounds or I'm going to lose 5% of my current weight because the thinking or the advice is that if you set this high goal, you'll be disappointed because you won't reach it, right? Your progress will not be nearly what you'd hoped and you'll give up and you'll stop doing it at all. And we've we've all heard this. So a recent study in the Journal of Health Psychology finds that that is not necessarily true. And what they did was they took a Dutch sample, 447 overweight or obese people who had made a New Year's resolution to lose weight. And more than half of the sample set a goal that was way above reducing their weight by 5 or 10%. So they set an ambitious goal. So then they were studied over time. They were studied basically once and then two months later, and they were checked in on. So did they fail? No. What, they, what the study found was that having a bigger weight goal, was weight loss goal, was not a bad thing because it predicted having more effort to reach the goal. It predicted somewhat more weight loss, although not a great deal. But it did not predict more dissatisfaction 
at the end of the period. So these were small correlations and then no correlation, but it certainly is enough to call into question the conventional wisdom that you have to set a moderate goal because that wasn't shown to be what you needed to do in this study. So I don't know. In 2014, maybe people should shoot for the moon in their weight loss plans. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm certainly going to have baby weight to lose. So <laughs> that's relevant for me. Um, and, you know, but I, I wonder if it isn't uh, almost like, a, you know, an inverted U-shaped curve in that if the goal is so far out, you know, does is there is there a fine balance? Um, I mean, we've all been disappointed. But on the other hand, you know, I, I can also see that if you if if setting a goal like for weight loss in particular is something that you know, makes you work harder at to achieve it. And you actually end up losing some weight, even if it's not as much weight as you want. It makes sense to me that, you know, you you start feeling better. Yeah, well, these people, they were not feeling down, or at least not the big, the ambitious um, goal setters. So I mean, I think that there's something, I think there's something positive. It's a sort of a positive psychology kind of finding. I'm also surprised that this has been studied so many times and said so many times, that it turns out that we don't know what the best approach is, is, is actually sort of surprising to learn. Uh, maybe now we know a little bit more, but there's actually, it turns out there's studies all over the place on this question of what the best weight loss strategy is. Yeah, it's a big industry. <laughs> That's right. Scientific and otherwise. Okay, well, look, with that, let's take a short break and we will be back with my interview with Carolyn Porco. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. Here's some news. We have been selected by the iTunes editorial team for the iTunes Best of 2013 list. It's meant to celebrate the year's best music, TV shows, movies, books, and most relevant to us, podcasts. We are really proud to be a part of it, and without all of you listening, it wouldn't have happened. So, thanks. You can check us out amongst everything else that was selected at iTunes.com slash best of 2013. And uh, although Justin Timberlake beat us out for 2013 Artist of the Year, with your continued support, there is always next year. Carolyn Porco, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, you were just, and this is what inspired this interview request, you were just at the Carl Sagan Summit at the Library of Congress, which is dedicating his personal papers to the library. And you gave, a, I thought, a stunning and moving speech there and released a really impressive image, which we're going to put on our website in conjunction with the show. So I want to ask you not to re-give the talk, but tell, tell our listeners what, it, what the day the Earth smiled was. Okay, well, it has a long history, and it goes back to the days of Voyager. Uh, that was the mission that toured the outer solar system in the 1980s. And uh, as your audience undoubtedly knows, there was a picture that was taken by the Voyager 1 spacecraft after its mission of encountering Jupiter and Saturn was over. Uh, when it was beyond the orbit of Neptune, in fact, after the whole Voyager mission, it, the planetary portion of it was over, its cameras would turn to take a picture of the Earth and the other planets that it could see, five other planets. And this was a project that was um, spearheaded by Carl Sagan, and I was one of the other people involved in it, in the planning and the execution of that image. Actually, uh, I had proposed the very same thing as soon as I was made a member of the Voyager imaging team, which was late October, I mean, late 1983, early 1984, uh, and couldn't get the thing done. I mean, the, the, pro the Voyager project people were not open to the idea of using the spacecraft resources to do such a thing. So I kind of 
got stymied in that, but I learned about four or five years later that Carl Sagan, two years before me, had proposed the same thing uh, and also got stymied and got turned back. And anyway, he managed to do all the political maneuvering to finally get it done, and it was done on Valentine's Day, 1990. And it turned out to be the famous pale blue dot image. And, um, you know, it, it, it turns out it's not a good image. It's just a picture of a dot uh, with nothing else around it except scattered uh, light beams scattered in the optics of the camera. But it didn't matter that it wasn't a beautiful image. It was what Carl Sagan had to say about it and how he romanced it uh, that turned it into a um, an inspirational call to planetary brotherhood and protection of the earth and so on. And it's become, uh, it's become iconic. I mean, you say the words pale blue dot to people, they know what, they know generally what you're talking about if they know anything about the space program. So I was involved in that. And, and then, you know, Cassini comes along and I become the leader of the Cassini imaging team. And I, I, from day one, I had it in my mind. I wanted to do that picture only better. I wanted to, um, you know, make it beautiful. In fact, in his proposal to the Voyager project to take the picture of Earth, Carl had written that the idea was to take a picture of the Earth, and I quote, a wash in a sea of stars. Well, the pale blue dot picture doesn't have any stars in it. So anyway, there was great improvements that could be made, and I had in mind to do it. Can I just ask, um, briefly, why there was resistance? That seems odd to me. Uh, this was on what basis? Oh my goodness! There was it, there was enormous resistance because the engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory were very, very, um, you know, rigid and careful. You know, they they were not enthused about doing things just for. This is you know the day. This is 1980s. Okay. I think it was even before the words public outreach were even invented. They, they were very, um, I mean, I don't want to criticize them too much, you know, because they were uh, worried about the condition of the spacecraft. And in those days, you didn't take, in order to do the pale blue dot observation, you had to take the antenna which was always, in, on the Voyager project, always pointed to the Earth. It was always in communication with the Earth. So people were very fearful. You take the antenna offline, as they say. You might never get the spacecraft back. So, you know, you'd have to have a really, really good reason to do that. And they didn't deem us a picture of the Earth, which they thought, my God, it's just going to be a pixel. What, what, could, what science could possibly be in that? They didn't quite get the whole romance of the idea and what a symbol it would become. And so Carl actually had to go to NASA headquarters and get the NASA administrator to instruct JPL to get the picture taken. Now, now I encountered, I'd been trying to do pictures like this as soon as Cassini was launched. And every now and again, I proposed something and I got a resounding no. I had proposed, in fact, to take as Cassini past the Earth as it was departing from the Earth. I had proposed to take a movie of the moon going around the Earth. I thought this would be tremendous. It would be beautiful. We could do it in color. You know, it wouldn't take that many spacecraft resources. We only had to take a picture maybe once a day for a month or something like that. And I was told no. It was, it was often like that when you came up with a, a proposal to do something that was just for the sake of, 
you know, a pretty picture or public outreach that you got told no. I Thankfully, by the time we did this Day There It Smiled event, um, I didn't receive uh, much resistance at all. Uh, people had finally come around to realizing how just a simply beautiful picture could really grab people and and kind of take them along for the ride and make them see how beautiful the exploration of the solar system really can be. So, so anyway, back to the day the Earth smiled. I had thought of this, like I said, as soon as I was made the team leader. That was November in 1990. Uh, the same year we took the pale blue dot picture, but um, you know it wasn't really until uh, until a few years ago that I that you know I had the time to really do it right and look through the, t- the trajectory that had already been planned and look for opportunities when we could actually take a picture of the Earth, uh, it, it, which requires looking in the direction of the sun, so the sun had to be eclipsed. Uh, and long story short, everything lined up. The geometry was right. I had an opportunity where I wouldn't have to push aside another really important scientific observation, so I didn't incur the wrath of any of my scientific colleagues in this proposal. And we did it, but we did it in a different way, and this is what I'm most proud of. It occurred to me somewhere along the line, you know, every time a spacecraft, a NASA spacecraft, turned to take a picture of the Earth, and there have been many actually since the original pale blue dot, it was always taken and then announced to the public afterwards, hey, here's this picture of the Earth. Isn't it cool? We took it last week or, you know, we took it from the surface of Mars a month ago. I thought, whoa, all of this is such a lost opportunity. Why don't we tell people in advance your picture is going to be taken and we could turn this into an interplanetary photo session. You know, an interplanetary salute between robot and maker. Wouldn't that just be, that would suddenly give people the opportunity to think big, really big. They would be conscious of a spacecraft all the way at Saturn taking their picture. I'm getting goosebumps, frankly, as I'm talking to you about this. So, so we did that. We announced it ahead of time. And unfortunately, we didn't announce it far enough ahead to get millions of people around the globe to know about it. It was only a month ahead that we did the announcement, but we did get people all around the globe. Maybe there were only tens of thousands, uh, but we did get people involved in this. And um, the picture was taken. It took an enormous amount of work to plan it and also an enormous amount of work to process it to look as beautiful as it ended up being. I mean, it literally couldn't be made any more beautiful or any more right than it, we made it. And the greatest thing was that people wrote into our website and comments about how they felt when they were taking, when the picture was being taken, because we said, go out. I said, I mean, I've I've had an article on the BBC website that invited everybody, told everybody, go out. At the moment this picture is taken, you have a 15 minute window, go out, look up. Think about our cosmic place. Think about our planet, how unusual it is, how lush and life-giving it is. Think about your own existence. Think about the magnitude of the accomplishment that this picture-taking session entails. We have a spacecraft at Saturn. We are truly interplanetary explorers. Think about all that and smile. And so they did that, and people wrote in describing exactly how they felt, and it was exactly how I wanted them to feel. They felt a connection to everybody around the planet. And I don't know if you did this, but I did this too. 
And I was in total rapture. I just, I, I myself, even though I was the one who planned it, I just felt like, wow, everybody, not everybody, but lots of people around the globe right now are feeling exactly the way I'm feeling. They're mindful of our extended senses, you know, a billion, a billion miles away. So it turned out to be a tremendous success. And what I did at the Library of Congress celebration was we unveiled it there. That was the day we released it to the public, and I dedicated it to Carl because we do see, when you look in close, we do see the earth awash in a sea of stars, and it looks just phenomenally beautiful. So I'm enormously proud of the whole thing. It just turned out beautifully. Well, we're going to... Obviously, we're going to share the image at motherjones.com, climatedesk.org, and it's been shared widely, and it is a spectacular thing. And, and listening to you talk about it is also inspiring. Will there be any more opportunities? Because I, you know, though I did not actually know, <laughs> I would have done it. Um, I think not enough people knew. So this is this something that needs to be repeated. Well, I don't know that there'll be an opportunity. We, there, um, Yeah, I don't know. We, You know, the Cassini mission is, if we're lucky, we'll get another four years. Uh and um, and I don't know that we'll have the resources to do that. I know it sounds surprising, but it it took a lot of work to plan this, you know, uh, to figure out even what the exposure times had to be in order to capture the Earth. The Earth is a rather difficult target to image because it hasn't been done a lot from space, I mean, from that distance. And... Um, and I don't know that we'll have the resources to do it again, you know, but, um, and I don't know that I want to do it again. It was a special event, you know. We can't have another day the Earth smiled. What would that be, day two the Earth smiled? Well, we want the Earth to have a reputation as a smiley place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, I've got another, I've got another um, kind of wonderful thing going on. We're going to compose a group of, of um, very impressive uh, advisors and I are going to compose a message uh, describing the Earth and life on it and what we know about our cosmic environment, and we're going to broadcast it to space, to the galaxy, from the Arecibo radio telescope uh, sometime in the future. And that's going to be another announcement of, I, I consider it like an announcement of our um, our galactic awareness, you know, like a like coming of age as, as uh, galactic citizens, so to speak. It had been done before in, uh, oh, I think 19, oh, I'm forgetting now, in the first, maybe 1974, it was uh, uh, spearheaded by Frank Drake. Everybody should know who Frank Drake is of the famous Drake equation. Uh, and he um, and others designed a very, very brief message to be sent broadcast outwards from the Arecibo telescope. It was actually a demonstration of the utility of the Arecibo telescope. It had just, I guess, come online. And we're going to do it over again, but this time do it, you know, have a lot more information broadcast from it. And Frank Drake is one of my advisors. So that's another kind of, uh, how do I say this, extension of our, um, our beings, as it were, into the cosmos. So, you know, the public has that to look forward to. That's great. And it all, I mean, it all does invoke uh, the character of Carl Sagan and what he meant, which is, of course, why you unveiled it at that event. I, I have to say, I blogged. I was there. I wrote a blog. I, I took a political angle, you know, what would Carl Sagan have said about climate change? But I also talked about the event and his legacy. And I got to say, it was a little surprising to find that even already people don't know 
uh, not everyone knows what Carl Sagan was about. People know, oh, the guy who wrote Contact. And I'm like, that's the tip of the iceberg, you know. That's, but, uh, you know, do you, do you feel that people have, have somehow missed what Carl Sagan was about if they're younger? Well, I didn't realize what you just told me, but it doesn't surprise me because in our culture, people have what, you know, 30-second attention spans and celebrities come and go. And, you know, probably to them, they think of Sagan as maybe just another celebrity and they've never looked into exactly what he did. Um, and he was just, you know, unstoppable in his uh, in his intellect and in his... Um, I don't know, you know, to me, he was the ultimate romantic. He romanced the uh, scientific endeavor and the exploration of the cosmos uh, and, you know, brought it to the public. And he was just so, um, I don't know, I just had infinite respect and love for Carl because he was so respectful himself and he had such reverence for his subject. And, And if you're your um, listening audience only knows of contact. They should, you know, look at Cosmos, the original Cosmos. I know it's going to be redone, but they should look at the original Cosmos. And it might be dated in its production values, but the message is just astonishing in its scope. And, you know, for him, and what he was trying to say was that science was an integral part of uh an integral and transformative feature of human culture. And that's, you know, that's, it's, uh, that therein lies its, um, its power for transforming, uh, human life. And so, um, you know, that is a message that people really, really need to learn today, you know, especially since we're not exactly being responsible custodians of our own planet. And the reason why we're not is because we are turning our backs you know, at least our political um, machinery is turning its back on uh, the findings of scientific inquiry. Well, you know, I think that I think that it's just the, the fact that there is going to be a new cosmos uh, on it's going to be on Fox next year uh, will probably help this a little bit. But I think that it, you know, even though the original cosmos reached some insane number of millions that I cannot remember, but it'll blow your mind. It is it is generationally limited, I think, and so it's really important to have it for another generation. Um, I, well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I want to right. see how it turns out. Right. Uh, I've been on the set of it, actually. I was invited to go to the set and saw um, saw Neil deGrasse Tyson do his thing, and it's you know it's it's interesting to see the mechanics of how a a, a film shoot works. But um, I, the production values are you know out of sight. You know, very modern, you know, all the, the you know, whatever the whatever that expression is, no holes barred. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's just going to be uh, an astonishing production. So and I'm sure because it's uh, it's being written by Steve Soder, who was one of the original writers of the original Cosmos. And he's a, you know, excellent scientist and Andrewian who also collaborated and wrote uh, Cosmos. It's going to be, um, it'll probably be excellent. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Well, let's, let's shift a little bit and let's talk about your day job. I mean, you have an amazing job as head of imaging for Cassini and it's been sending us these incredible uh, pictures. And, uh, you know, there's so many things one could ask about, but I, I guess a lot of them, the biggest excitement has surrounded the moons and especially in Enceladus, am I saying that it, that it right? 
uh, and whether they can support Enceladus. life. Enceladus. I'm sorry about Enceladus, yeah. My bad. Enceladus, and, and whether it can support life. And um, I guess I'll ask, I could ask many things about that, but I'll ask, I mean, if we could have sent a, if we, if we could have known what we know now, would we have sent a probe there instead of Titan, or would we have done both? What do you think? Oh, that's hard to say, <laughs> you know, because these things in the end, they often come down to politics and how many people argue for one thing or the other and how effective the arguments are, et cetera. But I would imagine that if we had to do it again, at the very least, we would have included um, a mass spectrometer. This is an instrument that can scoop up material and measure its chemical composition, a mass spectrometer that was um, very much more capable and sophisticated than the one that Cassini carries. Okay, the one that Cassini carries can measure, uh, I'm making this very simplistic, but can measure light, small molecules. But if you want to ask the question, if there's anything biologically interesting in whatever it is you're analyzing, you really have to be able to measure and discriminate large molecules because, you know, amino acids and the like are big, you know, and, and proteins are big and so on. So you really want to have an instrument more capable than the one that Cassini carries. Now, now, as I'm saying this, I don't really know myself if at the time the Cassini mission was designed and then later launched if mass spectrometers that capable were even around. But, but that certainly would have been on the minds of people planning Cassini if uh, we knew what we had in store for us. And, and we're kind of in that position now with Europa, you know, Europa is the mission that was decided, you know, again, a long time ago. Europa was going to be the mission that we were going to go to next, the big, the big mission to the outer solar system. And, of course, over time it's gotten smaller and smaller because the budget for it has, has been reduced and reduced. But nonetheless, it was the, the next mission out, and even our discoveries at Enceladus couldn't displace it. There was so much political momentum behind it. But... It turns out that there's been a recent announcement of a plume of material coming off the southern pole of, of Europa, and uh, that's very exciting because if it really is there and it has to be confirmed, and it's doing what people think it's doing, that is, it's, you know, it's there when the tensile stresses on Europa are greatest, and then it's not there when the surface goes into compression, which happens in an eccentric orbit as Europe is in, then, um, and we, you know, we're confident that it's really there, then what we ought to be doing with the Europa mission is either adding a capable mass spectrometer or swapping out another instrument and making sure we have a proper chemical analyzer on Europa. And then we could just jump to the quick, you know. We will, the first mission you know, to Europa, directed to Europa, will have on it the kind of instrument that we wish we had on, on Cassini to study Enceladus. And, and that would make it tremendously exciting if on Europa we found anything that was of biological interest. I mean, to me, even though I was trained as a planetary, science, uh, planetary rings person, that is, my specialty was in the study of the dynamics uh, and kinematics of planetary rings, for me, the most exciting thing that we have found with Cassini, and this is even on top of the, the wondrous things we have found on the surface of Titan, the most profound thing we found is the geological activity, the geysering activity at the south pole of Enceladus, because we are confident now that those geysers are erupting from 
a body of liquid water, an ocean or a sea under the South Pole that is salty and is suffused with organic materials. And like it's got everything, and biologically available nitrogen, it's got everything that, that we have been saying, NASA's been saying for decades now that we want to get up close and personal with because it uh, it could be an inhabited zone, not just habitable, habitable, it could be inhabited. So uh, I, you know, I can't think of a more exciting time in the exploration of the planets than right now. Mm-hmm. But it, it cries out for doing more, right? And you, you can't send another probe right now. So you need to, you need to send one all the way from Earth, but that's not really on the agenda. And so it calls into question our priorities in some sense, doesn't it? Well, priorities are always being called into question, especially when you have new discoveries. But like I told you, Europa had a large political momentum behind it. You know, uh, it's a mission that's been studied for two decades. Two decades, I believe. I mean, it it goes back a long way to to when people started to think and put together ideas for going back to Europa. So that's hard to dislodge. Uh, but you know, there are motions afoot, shall I say, to uh, look at what kind of missions could be sent back to Enceladus. And I'm, in fact, on a mission that could be conducted together with the Japanese to send a mission to your, to Enceladus that would fly through the plume. Uh, and if you're in orbit around Saturn, you could do this, uh, you know, several times, scoop up material uh, from the plume um, and analyze it on board, so it would be like a mass spectrometer, an instrument like that, to do the analysis in situ, but also, in addition, have a sample return vehicle that would scoop up material and fly back to Earth. This would be before you get into orbit. It would be sent back to Earth, and seven years later, uh, it, would, um, it would arrive back at Earth. And so that's... Uh, that's uh, oh, isn't that, a, an, isn't that an exciting idea to bring a sample... A sample of material coming from a moon tucked away deep in the gravity well of Saturn and bring it back to Earth. Okay, that's goosebump inducing also. So, you know, there are just tremendous plans or at least ideas that people are developing now. Uh, Who knows when we'll be able to do this? The planetary program right now is really under siege with budget cuts and so on and so forth. But, I, you know, if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, in my lifetime, it'll happen eventually. So um, I, I can only hope that I'm alive to see that happen. Let me ask you one more thing, and this is just coming out of my fascination uh, with, with Saturn, and we've seen uh, a great image of it recently. This hurricane-like hexagon uh, on one of the poles, uh, it's, we, obviously we know a lot about hurricanes on Earth. It has a, it has a vortex, um, but it also is hexagonal. Um, tell us a little bit more about it. Okay, so you are conflating two oh, separate observations. Yes. The, the vortex, the hurricane-like vortex at the exact north pole of Saturn is, that's it, at the exact north pole of Saturn, and it has winds that are 50% stronger than the uh, winds that leveled more Oklahoma. I mean, just huge energetic winds, and it's... Um, it looks like a hurricane, and uh, it's receiving a lot of examination now, and it's a you know very interesting feature. Uh, but the the thing that gets and and we we produce what I think is one of our most stunning pictures. Uh, it's in 
vivid false color, but nonetheless, it's so beautiful. I, we named it the rose. It's a, the, the hurricane, the vortex in a vivid red surrounded by green. It was, it's so beautiful. It made, um, it made NBC news. Okay. Brian Williams talked it up. That was really, um, that was really wonderful. I was very proud of that. But, but the thing that really gets people going is, as you said, this hexagon, which is um, some you know, distance away from the pole. And I forget myself exactly what latitude it is. I think it's about 60 degrees latitude, but I'm, don't quote me on that. And everybody thinks this is so weird because when you look down at it, it looks like a, a, you know, looks like a hexagon. It looks almost sharp-edged and six-sided and it looks so precise and you wonder oh this is weird it's in an atmosphere when things are usually billowy and not straight at all and here you have this six-sided figure but in fact it's not really weird it's just a jet stream like the jet stream we have uh, that brings our weather systems to us here on the earth it has six sides because it is six continuous waves in a jet stream like the earth has and it's constant and unchanging because many uh, meteorological systems on the giant planets are constant the giant the great red spot on jupiter has been around for hundreds of years as far as we know and it hasn't wound down and and we think and the winds on saturn have blown pretty much at the same level of intensity uh, ever since the days of the Voyager, um, which is, you know, several decades and very likely much longer than that because there's no friction in the giant planet atmospheres. On the Earth, our weather systems, you know, move over hill and dale and oceans and mountains and so on, and that adds friction and that removes energy from these things and they wind down and they dissipate and then, you know, they have to get started all over again. But on Saturn and on Jupiter and places and on Neptune, you don't have things like that. So weather systems last a long time and they can be very stable. So Saturn's jet stream is only a very stable version of the jet stream that we have on the Earth and it's no more mysterious than that. It looks excited because it's just got six very stable waves that wind around a spherical planet. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you. That actually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, everyone's been trading that image. I think there's been a lot of conflation of them. Um, so thanks for clearing, clearing that up too. Um, so I guess I want to move on um, briefly and just talk about some of the things you've done. Uh, you've also worked with Hollywood a little bit. I mean, you worked on Contact and also on Star Trek. You advised them uh, about, uh, this is the new Star Trek, the 2009 one about some scientific matters. So I guess that's two, that's at least two encounters over about 10 years. I mean, it seems like Hollywood has gotten more science friendly. Does, would you agree with that? Um, well, let's see. Uh, I don't, I, I can't compare cause I don't know how science friendly or not it used to be. Um, I mean, you know, remember, uh, one of my absolutely favorite movies, uh, and certainly my most, most, most favorite science fiction movie was the movie 2001. And Stanley Kubrick went um, went nearly personally broke because he put so much effort into trying to make that movie scientifically accurate. I don't know if people know that, but he interviewed major companies at that time, like Howard and Howard Johnson and Pan Am, and and you know, asking them, "What do you think? Where do you think you'll be? What will you be doing in the year 2001?" And he he really tried to make it realistic. So that was a giant nod to trying to get the science right. But um, I, you know, I was 
impressed that, you know, I did get invited by J.J. Abrams to uh, participate in Star Trek. He had been at the first TED conference that I spoke at, which was in 2007. And um, I ended up meeting him and I got his email and I put his email address in my um, you know, Cyclops distribution list, which by the way, your listeners can easily sign up for if they wish to. They go to cyclops.org and on the right-hand side is a way to sign up for our Cassini image announcements and so on. Well, J.J. Abrams is on that and other people like Richard Branson and, and uh, the guys at Google and so on, all the people I met at TED. And J.J. Uh, Abrams called me up nine months afterwards and invited me to uh, participate in Star Trek. So I agreed, and uh, I, was, I was flattered. I thought it was really a nice gesture that he even cared you know, enough to, about you know, promoting the space program and science to invite me. And, uh, and it was great. I, was, uh, I, I won't tell you the whole story because it's kind of lengthy, but I was the one who suggested that scene where the Enterprise comes out of warp drive in the atmosphere of Titan and then rises submarine style out of the atmosphere with the rings and Saturn in the background. I suggested that. I said, boy, this could be an astounding scene if you could do it. And they went ahead and did it. So that whole scene was mine, but basically mine. I'm very possessive about it. And it was considered, it was considered by a major visual uh, computer graphics magazine called Cinefix that circulates in Hollywood, I guess, and elsewhere. It was considered such a cool scene. They put it on their cover. So, um, so that was very gratifying. But frankly, that's all they, they asked of me. They never asked me anything else. And, you know, they had some very silly thing in the movie, like the enemy ship couldn't detect the Enterprise because the magnetic field of the rings scrambles the signals, but there is no magnetic field in the rings. So they got that wrong. But anyway, um, I, I, you know, what, what can I say? They didn't get it right. They didn't get it completely right, but it still was a nice gesture. And uh, I, let's hope that kind of thing continues in the future. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not terribly worried about the the the, the detection of the enemy ship. I'm, I'm much more enthused that they're bringing you in and actually visualizing some of the stunning things uh, in the solar system. So I'm ha- I, I I'd call that a win. Yeah, I call it a win too. And my experience with contact was actually better than that because I was, uh, um, you know, I was invited by Sagan. I say this in the interview that I gave for the Library of Congress. It's on the Library of Congress website. But I was invited by Carl to participate in that because uh, he wanted to, I mean, you could imagine he's a scientist. He's devoted to accuracy and truth, and he wanted to lend authenticity to the character that they were creating to put you know, in the movie and on the screen. And he invited me and I'll never forget. He said, out of all the female scientists, I know you come closest to being like the character we want to portray in the, on the screen. So that's how I got invited there. And that was a very, um, that was a lovely experience and gave me a great deal of insight into how people go about crafting a character and how they, you know, put together a, um, put together a story and put together a, um, a screenplay. So we can think of you as a model for Ellie Arroway. Um, not the only model. Not the only model. Uh, and and I never, you know, one part of the um, part of the intention in inviting me was to to get me together with Jodie Foster, the woman who played Ellie, uh, so she could kind of, you know, do the normal thing like 
you know, pal around with me as I go about my activities, trying to learn how a scientist behaves, a female scientist behaves. And it took a year, you know, of trying to get our schedules together. I'd receive these frantic phone calls from Warner Brothers saying, quick, tell us what you're going to do for the next three months. We want to see if we could get a time when you and Jody can spend time together. And I'd give them my schedule. Three months would go by. I'd never hear anything. And then after three months, I'd get a phone call. Quick, tell us what you're going to be doing for the next three months. And we did this about three or four times over the course of a year, a year and a half. And it never happened. Um, So I never got to meet her. But I have to say she did an excellent job, I thought, in portraying a scientist and the challenges and even, you know, getting the whole passion thing uh, right. So, you know, she didn't really need any more help. And um, I was told, actually, she ended up using Carl as her her main uh, her main muse. So it all worked out well. I thought they did a very good job with contact. Of course, the book is far better. And if anybody really wants to get a feel for what Carl Sagan and the way he approached things was like, they should read contact because it was um, it was a magnificent uh, way to portray lots of things like the intersection of science and religion. Yeah, no, and I've I've read it, and it is it is one of the greats. Well, I, we need to probably wrap up here. So I guess to try to pull all these threads together, you've uh, had an incredible career of communicating about science through images, through a lot of other means that we've talked about, including you know talking to filmmakers and seeing how that works. I mean, if you wanted to give some advice to somebody who who is inspired to try to do the same, to try to reach people, uh, and to try to make them understand why it matters, what would you say? Um, gosh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that that's a pat answer. There's a pat answer to that because I just, you know, I just describe what it does for me, I guess, or at least it comes across when I talk about it, what it does for me and how, how, um, how meaningful it is. I mean, that's, that's my shtick, you know. I, I got into science. I was attracted to science and I was attracted in particular to the exploration of our solar system because I thought it was the most meaningful thing that I could do with my life. And it was, uh, it would give me kind of, how do I put this? But, you know, I couldn't do anything bigger than be a part of the exploration of our solar system. And what could be bigger than that? And, uh, you know, I know as a result of what I've done in my career, being a part of the Voyager mission, which was the most romantic mission there was, and then being, you know, playing such a major role in Cassini's uh, exploratory expedition of the Saturn system, uh, I know as a result of all that, that I now can write my name, you know, as small as my signature might be, I can write my name on the great declaration of human thought. I, you know, I made a difference in humankind's um, outlook on or knowledge of our cosmic position, our cosmic place. And that is, to me, something I'll take to my grave. You know, to me, I, I can know as a result of what I've done, however small it might be in the great scheme of things, that I've, you know, I've, had a, I've lived a good life. And so, uh, you know, maybe that's what comes across to people when I speak about it. But even if someone can't do what I've done, uh, they can certainly come along for the ride, and that's what I've tried to do in the processing of our pictures, the way we, uh, the way I've written uh, what I've written on the Cyclops website, my captain's logs, and so on. Uh, you know, it's everybody's ride, 
and and they ought to be they ought to feel a part of it. And um, you know, if people are getting that feeling that I'm I'm uh, I'm a happy woman, I think they are. Uh, I think that that is the answer is is show people what it actually really means. So, uh, Carolyn Porco, thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful interview, and we've learned a great deal. And so, keep sending us wonderful pictures. I will indeed, and thanks for having me. So what keeps coming back into my mind is uh, just how amazing it is that we've been able to accomplish so much, you know, to send us, you know, a, a spacecraft around Saturn and to, you know, be able to take all of these photos and get them back. And just the, the mind boggling amount of time it takes for the information to travel. It's just, I just find it really hard to grasp. And it, what's what you get from this interview, too, I think, is the fact that it is so amazing. But you need someone like Carolyn Porco or before her, Carl Sagan, to just tell you that, to take you and shake you and make you say, wow, because too many people that we see the pictures, but but the thoughts aren't just automatically engendered. And the whole scale of the accomplishment is not automatic. And maybe we're too blasé. Maybe we just sort of, oh, we get we get all kinds of great space pictures from the Hubble and everything else. You really need to have someone say, look, this is like the most amazing thing humans have ever achieved, person. Like, pay a little more attention and dig in a little deeper. And I think that's, you know, when you hear her talk, that's what happens to you. Yeah, I mean, she really puts the humanity into these missions and, and reminds you that, you know, like in this moment, the, the, the day the Earth smiled, you know, how, how much more powerful it is just to think that while that picture was being taken, you know, people were somehow engaged with it, even if it's just in a kind of metaphorical way. Um, you know, it, it shows us that this is something that's real, that's happening now, and that affects our lives. It's not just a picture that, you know, someone created. Yep, and uh, you know, it makes it makes space epic again, which, which I think is is really what we all need it to be. Yeah. Well, that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org, and you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk which is a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and newly added, The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andrea Viscontis. Happy New Year, everyone. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.